Greetings, and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today, I'm joined by Kyle. Hello. Let's get started from the very beginning. Did you start off as a GM or a player? I had a very brief run as a player. Uh, my character did not make it out of the first game. After that, I decided to try my hand on the other side of the screen, and I found that uh, for a long time, I vastly preferred that side. Uh, so you wanted to uh, experience the power that had brought you low? It wasn't even power that brought me low. It was just shitty dice. But yeah, that, that was certainly part of the appeal. You are no longer bound by dice. Nope. What system did you start off in? First edition D&D. I had access to a couple of my dad's books. I managed to convince a number of friends in, I think this was middle school at the time, to give it a try with me. And yeah, this was the edition where dwarves and elves were their own class. And aside from that, it was the uh, the original four. Who was your first short-lived character? I was the dwarf, and I was laid low by a giant beetle. But what was even more embarrassing was in the very next room, there was a magically sealed door that, of course, nobody could open at the time. Uh, my friends were so desperate to get in there that they used my stout corpse as a battering ram, and that failed. And then they knocked. Well, I mean, it's not like you're using that body anyways. Oh, no, of course not. When you took over as the GM, was that amicable or was it a violent coup? Uh, it's actually fairly amicable because while I could convince them to try the game with me, I couldn't convince any of them to actually lead the game. So my dad actually GM'd the first game. And then after I died, he saw a very convenient way for me to take over. And it was only after hindsight and my own deviousness that came in later that he probably planned that. But I can't fault him for that. About how long did you play with that system? Probably the rest of that summer, and then I kept on wanting to learn more about the system and other systems, whereas most of the friends did not. My history is one of uh, of droughts and spurts. So what did you move on to from that system? Straight up the D&D &D line? Well, I skipped two. The next time I was actually able to find other people that shared the interest was when uh, 3.5 was in vogue. So I messed around with that for a bit. I remember making the edgiest of edgelords at the time. And then after that, I actually found a swath of friends who uh, shared my interest in the hobby and also were able to actually stick around for more than two or three sessions once 4E was in big swing. So we had the big swing in 4E when it was first released and when it started getting popular. And from there, that's when I actually started branching out from outside the fantasy path. I did uh, Call of Cthulhu, because who doesn't enjoy a good game of losing your sanity? And I did some Pathfinder because I was really, truly desperate for a game at that time, and that was the only thing in town. Once I found my current group... Um, we spread out a little bit more. We did some uh, Warhammer Fantasy 3rd Edition, which uh, 
was the first instance of the uh, the dice that made their way over to Star Wars Edge of the Empire. I haven't been able to convince them to actually get into uh, Shadowrun yet, unfortunately, and I, I don't think they have the, the tolerance for all that crunch, so that's just a, a pet dream of mine. Um, started up with some uh, some Knights Black Agents. That's the new flavor of the month. Those are the big ones, as I recall. And as a GM, do you have a preference between the dice system that Warhammer uses versus the dice system that Pathfinder Dungeons & Dragons use? For a long time, I was just okay with the D20s because that was tradition. But once I started getting my mind able to break out of just hewing to tradition, I became a fan of any kind of alternative way to tell a story. And I, for one, am always okay with randomness influencing things. It's part and parcel of having spent any kind of time with GW products. So I was really a fan of the uh, of the dice system, and uh, hopefully soon I'll be able to actually get some Edge of the Empire going on the side, because I have not been able to yet, to my great shame. When you are constructing a narrative in a system that's a bit more free, how do you go about building it? My form is essentially spend more time than is necessary coming up with a backstory and a setting and prominent characters and the main hook storyline, and then always tossing it, as is the usual for this profession, properly out the door once the players start going with it, because I'm very okay with completely just making stuff up as the game goes along. It's a rare session where I actually want to or am able to spend more than 45 minutes or an hour of actual prep time. So I often just write down the core spine of where I want things to go, and then I write down the high notes of every session before it goes, and then I just make sure that the players see those high notes however they choose to get there. How about crafting NPCs? I try to let the players do as much legwork on that front as I can. So whenever they meet somebody that's actually going to be a recurring character, I um, I give the very basics of the descriptions. Um, so six foot male race, if applicable. And then I have them just do the, do the once around and add in distinguishing features. Do you do voices? Depends on the group, but most times I try to find a way to work it in when able, as long as it's a voice that doesn't murder my larynx. What about your characters? My current group, not so much, unfortunately. There have been a couple of groups that I have run where they are completely fine with getting into their character and actually role-playing instead of just treating it as a game RPG and just being themselves. But uh, that's definitely my preferred experience when everybody is outside of their heads. Do you do anything additionally to try to bring the world to life, say music or something to set the mood? I definitely have. I always try to get either some music going in the background or if I have access to uh, to a projector or TV just to set up like some background imagery and also some uh, primer images for 
things that would be somewhat difficult to describe verbally. I always try to make it more than just my voice when I can. So props sometimes, like uh, maps with burned edges or things of that nature. Anything that I can do to just create a more compelling world. Do you have one of these items that you would consider your most cherished in terms of adding flavor to a game world? Ooh. Um, I don't know about items that I cherish. I more favor techniques because techniques can be the same principle, but across many different vectors of transmission. I always try to throw in some kind of puzzle because in my group, puzzles are A, the preferred interaction for one or two members of the group, and B, it's also always the thing that somehow gets everybody to, you know, not just kind of be themselves and play how they would themselves. It gets them to think a little bit. What kind of puzzles? Standard Riddles in the Dark style word puzzles for one or two games, and then I realized that my wife, who is in a lot of my groups, is much better at those than I am, so that didn't last for very long. So after that, I mostly tried uh, word puzzles. My favorite was one that was listed in the uh, the 4E rulebook, and it was... Uh, I forget the actual name of it, but essentially, you took whatever coded message you were trying to have the players find, and then you write it out in columns, so each letter takes up one space in a row-by-column checkerboard, and you arbitrarily set the page width to uh, five or seven characters, and then you scramble all the letters in each column by uh, alphabetical order. So, let's say in your phrase, it'll happen to go down maybe five or six lines, and you just take the one column, which could have an R, an O, a G, F, and a P, and you just scramble them in that column by alphabetical order. So they have to go through and figure out the correct order for everything. Interesting. Do you find that having your wife as one of your players changes how you DM? No. When the game starts, I really just try to forget any personal associations that I have with people because it doesn't super carry over. I just try to remember how they like to engage with things, and I try to bring that over into my sessions and my ideas whenever I can. But the fact that it's friends that I've known since high school, for some of them, and the fact that it's my wife, it more factors into how I can get them to open up and let loose a little bit. Do you ever have to watch yourself around her like she's trying to sneak plot details out of you? No. More often than not, they just try to uh, sneak either solutions or lenient rulings from me instead of uh, actual plot details. How lenient are you willing to go? Uh, For the long time, uh, very lenient. But uh, recently, I'm just more of the attitude where uh, unless it comes to actual character death, then the dice just kind of fall as they may. Uh, do they know that you're being lenient? Oh, God, no. So they don't uh, have a carefree attitude when it comes to the game? No, I have the carefree attitude, but the great trick is making it seem to them like I don't. One of my standard favorite things to do is whenever it gets to a question that comes up where 
I don't necessarily want to or have the time to make sure everything is accurate. I just have them roll whatever die is closest to them and make a point of looking at some random page for about five or ten seconds and then just making up an answer for their question or how to proceed in my head. Ah, the classic screen bluff. Yep. Except I never use screens, really, unfortunately. Oh. Well, then I don't want to play poker against you. (laughs) It's the laptop bluff nowadays, anyway. Do you prefer to get away from fantasy at this point? I personally prefer to get away from fantasy wherever I can, because it's what just about everybody started with, and um, unless you have some real dedication and appreciation for that kind of setting, it's just played out. A friend of mine put it best, it's very difficult to actually have a compelling fantasy world that's not just Middle-Earth. Like, you either are copying Middle-Earth too much, in which case just do something involving Lord of the Rings, or you're going too original and it's just kind of silly and trite. So it's very difficult to walk that fine line of different but also still compelling. When you're GMing a game... Do you have an end goal in mind for your players? I always have an end goal in mind. Uh, Of course, we never ever get there, but uh, it's still fun to have the end goal in mind. The closest I've ever gotten was um, a play-by-post 4E game where I literally had ideas for the characters to, at the very end of everything... Uh, transcend their mortality and become, of course, the new gods until one of them would have to sacrifice himself to the pits, but uh, that made it uh, I want to say two years before uh, this the ending, which I foolishly had actually tailored to each individual character and their backstory before too many of them dropped out to make any kind of sense out of the ending because then all the replacement characters didn't have the same beats and the same history. It's fairly admirable length, though, for a play-by-post. I know. I'm actually still pretty proud of it. What was the title of it? Uh, the Fantastical Contraption. Oh, that makes me want to just look it up. <laughs> have you given up on fantasy RPGs? It has to take something really special for me to get into fantasy nowadays. Now, granted, it doesn't have to be, you know, super mundane either. There has to be some element of uh, of not normal to it. A lot of designers nowadays are, are striking a better balance of that to me. I just kind of gravitate to that, that kind of stuff. When you're starting a new game, like if you were to start Star Wars, how deep do you go in with the initial investment? Too much. Have you gotten burned before? More like burned constantly. I do not do things half-measured. When I see a new system that catches my eye, I will get the core book, and I will probably read the core book cover to cover multiple times, and I will get a couple of little seeds throughout, and then on second reading, they develop as I recall new things that I might have overlooked the first time through. And then I see if there are any extra, like, free or cheap supplements that I can score. And then all of these things will just build together and build together. And usually, before I know it, I will have half of a spine written before I even figure out if anybody wants to play the damn thing. 
Do you require any sort of initial investment from your players as well? I really should. More often than not, it just consists of me uh, just saying to them, hey, I found this cool thing. And at that point, I typically have a good one-sentence zinger description and say, do you guys want to play this? The one thing about them is that they can be very easy to lead into things. We have a fair number of, uh, of starts and some middles, but uh, very, very few completed. Can you think of the last game that you organically completed? No, I honestly can't. I think I've just kind of gotten used to it at this point. That also probably means that I should just be writing shorter stories instead of this whole long thing. I do have very high hopes for the Knights Black Agents game that I'm running online with a couple of people. It's going strong, and the, their commitment is similarly strong so far. What would you say are the main differences in terms of a face-to-face RPG versus over-the-internet? Uh, face-to-face is obviously the preferred because there's just so many so many extra layers of depth that you can invoke and that you can get out of the players in terms of emotions and connection and interaction. But, of course, it has the prerequisite of everybody has to be in the same geographical region with the same free schedule spots, yada, yada, yada. I mean, online is proving to be a nice substitute so far because a lot of the materials that I could have used in a in-person game uh, can still just be used over the internet, aside from I don't get to hand them physical items or pamphlets or anything like that. We can use Google Maps if we're doing a real-world game, or we can find a generic fantasy map easy enough. There's tons of them online. It's proving a nice uh, substitute in a pinch, which I am finding myself in increasingly more pinches as of late. So this game is called Knight's Black Agents? Yes. The gist of it is that the players are a team of either burned or retired covert intelligence operatives in Europe, and they happen to stumble onto a vampire conspiracy, and they have to examine and defuse the conspiracy before they get killed or turned or however the vampires in that campaign work. How did you find this RPG? Uh, I actually went to the, uh, the RPG thread on the forum and just said, Hey, I'm looking for a new game, but honestly, I have not been able to pay attention to new systems for some time because a, they're coming out so much faster now, and B, I had a son last December, our first child, and yeah, uh, apparently children take lots of work. Hoota hoota thunk. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Are you grooming a third generation GM? I made a pledge to myself that I was not going to force any of my interests on him. I'm not going to force miniatures or video games or RPGs or fighting games or any of that. However, comma, if he shows interest in anything, I resolved that I would do 
every single possible thing that I could to assist and support them. So I would expect that he might be showing an interest in, oh, probably about nine or ten years or so. So I might, like, introduce him to it just to see if he enjoys it. And if he enjoys it, then that's uh, that's going to be a deep rabbit hole. So you turn to the Penny Arcade forum for help finding a new RPG, and then what happened? Um, so one of the people there, I think it was uh, Jacob Kosh, he listed four or five different systems that I had heard of all of them in passing, except for Knights Black Agents, and when I looked more into it, something about it just kind of leapt up into me. It was the perfect combination of real mundane, well, not mundane, but real and conceivable versus out there and fantastic. Uh, because everybody kind of knows how a spy movie goes. Everybody's seen at least one Bond or one Bourne movie, so they have the basic tropes down in their head. And then you throw in the vampires, which... The other excellent twist to the system is uh, they aren't all just uh, Bram Stoker-style vampires. They could be uh, mutant results of some experiment that turned them into what looks like vampires. They could be aliens that have come to this world and who also just kind of happen to want to suck blood for whatever reason. But they have a lot of tools in that core set to help the, the, the game master create a compelling both vampire and minions and also a compelling conspiracy that can weave itself throughout the entirety of Europe if the if the director so chooses. Is this more of a narrative or dice-based game? Much more narrative. It's based off of the gumshoe engine, which uh, essentially your, your character has ratings in a number of both general and investigative skills. And if you are in a scene and you are looking for what's called a core clue, which is a key piece of information that you need to progress to the next scene. If you have any points in an investigative ability related to it, you just, you just get the clue. There's no rolling. So let's say that um, the director sets up a, a murder scene and they happen to know that uh, there's a particular quirk in the corpse that directs them to a coroner's office, which is part of the conspiracy somehow. So the players can just look at the corpse a little bit, and then either the players can ask or the director can prompt if any of them has any ratings in forensic pathology or something like that. And if any of them do, boom, the director tells them about the quirk in the corpse and where it could lead, and it just progresses on. Uh, players can spend points to get even more information, and if it's the general abilities like running, punching, shooting, driving things of that nature, then uh, D6s get involved, and they can spend those points to boost the roll. But you don't need anything for this game aside from maybe two or three D6s a person, and that's it. You got your pencils and paper and a couple of dice, and that is all that you need. Is this a game that you play live over the internet, or is it a play-by-post forum format? Uh, we run it on Discord. With a narrative game like that, do you prefer it to be off-the-cuff versus edited responses? I think so, yes, uh, because the nature of how deep you can make your conspiracies go means that 
there are tons and tons of different branches that you can write in that you might just have to drop on the fly or adjust on the fly. And I find that when I'm working that hard to improvise and keep things moving, it helps the players to be able to improvise and keep things moving as well. Because every GM, I, I haven't heard of one yet who doesn't at least sound like they're making stuff up as they go. They can have everything planned out, but you, you always hear the, the ums and the pauses that indicate that they're quickly refreshing something from their mind or from some note cards they've written down. So the, this game to me, since it is, has so, it can have so broad a scope, it helps to encourage a little bit of improv in both me and the players. Do you think that you've developed any tells that the players can pick up on? when you're not being quite so truthful. I hope not. Uh, I mean, it is literally just my voice they have to go off of, and I have been actually trying to pay attention to the spots where I stall a little bit and where I can write down at least a couple more things before the session starts. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so far, they haven't given me any evidence of... Uh, of them picking up on my tells when I'm just kind of improvising. And I think also the, uh, the supernatural aspect of that game helps out a lot because they could be just, uh, tailing somebody to, uh, to an organized meet when all of a sudden they have a fucking mutant Irish vampire coming down to them, waving a shillelagh around. And that kind of throws a pause into their mental strategies. And that pause gives me, a couple seconds or two to regain my faculties and try to figure out uh, how to naturally progress forward from that. With as hectic as it sounds the system can get, do you have an end game written out in your mind or on paper? Uh, yes. The, the other excellent thing about this system is that it essentially walks you through the process of writing an international conspiracy. It has a, uh, a tool called the Conspiramid, which is exactly as it sounds. It is a whole conspiracy organized into a pyramid format. So at the top layer, you have obviously the vampires or whatever is acting as a vampire in your campaign. And then beneath it, you have two nodes that act as uh, extraterritorial and supranational um, agents. So your vampire might be connected to a head of state or the head of a, a major crime organization. And then from there, those nodes connect to some national level ones. And then those go down to provincial and then down to city. And then finally, all the way down to the street level pushers and thugs that the players will start off with. So it encourages you to design, at, if not fully, at least a skeleton of things that work all the way up from the street corner to the seats of power throughout Europe. And it does so in an organic way while also encouraging the director to think about what these organizations care about, what are their objectives, and how are they going to accomplish those through all of their puppets, some of whom may not even know that they're working for a vampire. Is there a natural flow from street level up to national? Oh, yeah. There, there very easily can be. And then that, of course, depends on each individual director and how much time they take into making things sound logical. Uh, in mine, everything started with just a, a deal gone wrong, essentially. One guy contacts the agents and says, hey, I need this case back post-haste. Guy gets killed by a vampire while they're off getting the case. 
case has evidence of the conspiracy and it pushes them towards a couple of people. So for instance, push them toward a, a casino employee who turned out to be connected in illicit ways with their pit boss who turns out to have a connection to the mafia and some corrupt cops who turn out to have connections to an import export agency who turn out to have connections to some embassy workers and some chiefs of state, which can go all the way up to the vampires. Are you doing anything to subvert your players' expectations of what a vampire is? Ordinarily, if it was just the straight uh, folkloric vampire, as soon as the players would see them drinking blood, all they would have to do is just say, okay, well, he drinks blood. The first thing I can think of when that happens is a vampire. I'm just going to read every folklore legend and every copy of Dracula that I can find, and now I know exactly how to defeat them, which kills the tension. So the trick is to design your vampires that they might share one or two core similarities. Usually it is the drinking of blood that's the tell, but they don't share any of the banes and the weaknesses that uh, that the standard folklore vampires do. And it, uh, it provides you with a big comprehensive list of things that both supernatural and extraterrestrial and mutant vampires might fear or might actually be able to finally be killed by, uh, which are more than just the standard garlic in the mouth, steak in the heart, throw their ashes in running water, etc., etc. Do your vampires sparkle? Oh, God, no. Uh, so far, uh, the core similarity, the only core similarity that my players have been able to notice uh, between vampires is that they all have messed up voice boxes. One of them so far has not been able to talk, period. Uh, the other, he constantly sounds like the G-Man from Half-Life. Nobody is able to actually talk normally. And also, they know that tasers do not work on them, because one of them got shot point-blank with a stun gun, and he was unfazed. Do the characters know that vampires exist in this world, or just the players? We are starting to get to the... Well, we're past the point where some supernatural shit's been going down. Uh, the players did a little bit of library research on the basic vampires, and they're at the point where they're operating with all of the uh, the Stoker assumptions, and they haven't yet had a chance to have those blow up in their face. So this is always the super fun part, when you hear them talking about getting, you know, wild roses and wolfsbane, and you just think to yourself, that's not gonna work. I mean, maybe they're getting the wild roses to give them a nice bouquet. Yeah, maybe. You never know. Get on a vampire's good side. <laughs> so is this a game where turning is a legitimate winning strategy? Uh, you mean turning of the players into vampires? Yes. Uh, for me... Yeah, I mean, if I can if I can convert them all into vampires, then I, be I believe the vampires win in that scenario. So they can't turn their back on their human brethren and have it be considered a victory for them? Uh, that could happen in a bigger game. There are actual mechanics for uh, trust in between the different agents, some of whom might not even know each other before they realize that they're being targeted for death by vampires. So there are mechanics for how much you actually trust the other people at your table, or whether you think they've been suborned or converted by the vampire conspiracy. Uh, unfortunately, my game is not big enough to really have those come into play. Uh, it's only just uh, uh, two people at the moment. 
So right now we kind of have to operate on the fact that they can implicitly trust each other and no one else. Have you had any between player arguments? No, uh, not yet. They've been rolling with the punches pretty well. I'm happy to say they're at the point where they're starting to get a shape of how things could possibly be going. And they have solid leads they can operate off of, but they are not able to fill in the particulars yet. And that's not frustrating them. That's just motivating them, which is what I was going for in the first place. Uh, Given that you like to set a certain atmosphere for your games, do you require them to do anything to set the atmosphere for you? I should, because we're getting now to the number of sessions where they're starting to get comfortable with the system. Neither of them had played this or really even had anything more than just heard about the basic premise before we started. So we're enough sessions in now where I can expect them to start getting more comfortable with the system and starting to take the reins more in terms of descriptions of both themselves and role-playing moments and, and things like that. How do you feel about using unwinnable encounters? I try to stay away from the Kobayashi Maru as often as I can because more often than not, I will, that whenever I have tried in the past, I intentionally tried to make it as unwinnable as possible, and they always found a clever loophole out of it. So that always kind of disheartened me more than anything else. So at this point, I just try to make things difficult for them because difficult in this game is still pretty difficult. There, there is a, uh, there is a high mortality rate in this game, especially once guns start getting involved. Does this system have any sort of level for the characters? No, it's very freeform. So at the end of each, well, at the end of character creation, they have points in their general abilities and points in their investigative abilities, and they should have backgrounds for their characters and core contacts and things like that. And then what happens is at the end of each session, Uh, the book recommends that each player gets two experience points. And those experience points can just be invested as points in new skills. The balancing economy factor in here is that there are two very important skills, cover and network, which essentially cover makes you, lets you make up any kind of fake identity for yourself if you spend points from it. And network lets you make up any side NPCs that happen to be in a position to get you a favor. But those points that you spend from those two never refresh. You always have to put in experience points to rebuild those pools. Everything else will come back with either rest or completing a mission or time away from the, from the fight, something of that nature. But um, if you want to be able to make up both identities for yourself or people to help get you favors done, which are kind of crucial to just about any spy genre activity, you need to be sinking some experience points into those. And that's also not even counting the fact that you'll probably want to improve some skills that might come up more often than you expected at character creation. Given that it has a high turnover rate, do you make them start back from scratch? Well, we haven't needed to yet. They're not dead just yet. As a matter of fact, they only recently got into their first major scuffle. Up until that point, it's been mostly cloak and dagger. Once I start messing with their heads more, because there are um, mechanics in here for uh, acquiring mental illnesses due to dealing with the supernatural, and I'm always a fan of 
attempting to work in things that mess with people's perceptions. For instance, there's one section in the rule book, which I read it. And as soon as I read it, I loved it. So there was, the, as I mentioned, there's the, uh, the network ability where you can make up contacts that owe you favors. Uh, it is possible for someone to obtain a paranoia about just life in general. And if they have that and you happen to be playing a certain style, you can secretly roll the die whenever they make up somebody in their network. And on a, uh, on a certain number, that person is actually a figment of their imagination, but they believe that this person is real. So they can go on contacting this person for several sessions. And then ultimately you'll drop a bombshell on them when they'll have another NPC or one of the characters listening to them have a conversation with this figment of their imagination. And they just drop that classic bombshell of who were you just talking to? And that's when boom, everything pops up and Oh my God, I spent all this time just interacting with an imaginary person. Ah, Russell Crowe syndrome. Yep. Do you enjoy running a more cloak and dagger game or are you glad that it's getting frenetic and loud? I always enjoy things where a lot of your solutions can come from creative interpretations of other skills as opposed to just shooting it or bashing it in the face until it stops moving. I like brief intervals of high action and high intensity, but I always like the return to the secretive and the the subtle, uh, which is probably mostly just due to my personality. I personally tend to enjoy the stealth and the spy scenes, which is another reason why this system was drawing itself to me. Do you have a favorite NPC in this game? Um, hmm. I really like the fact that the players are taking the vampire that sounds like uh, the G-Man from Half-Life, whose name is Hlavin. I really like the fact that they just made him into a main antagonist so far, because A, as soon as I said his name, they both observe the fact that his name sounds like Jerry Lewis spitting up something. And they also just did not really care for his voice or his tone, because he really presents himself as like the consigliere type uh, that just obsesses over every detail. And even to the point where other members of the conspiracy call him like an asshole to his face. So I really like how they just took those little side snippets and ran with it and just made him, even though they know he's not the, the puppet master, they just made him public enemy number one. Cause they just want to punch his face so badly. Can we meet Pavan? Uh, I can certainly try. Give me two seconds. Good evening, Mr. Moon. I have heard that you requested my presence, and I appear like the rabbit from your hat. I can certainly understand why the other vampires talk about him. To his face. Does he have any secret plans for getting revenge? Oh, he knows that the end goal of the Puppet Master's plan will make them all burn, but none of them know that. So he is super content to just sit back and let them get their last in while they can. Was there any specific inspiration for the narrative you've constructed for this game? 
I had the core idea of the vampire conspiracy down before I really finished reading the book the first time through. And then each subsequent reading just added something to it that I ran with. And this is again, me being uh, super ambitious because um, my particular conspiracy isn't one vampire. It is a family of vampires and they are the results of a secret Nazi experiment to make the Ubermensch. And instead they created four uh, related vampires who realized that with their newfound powers, it would be trivial for them to just kind of take over humanity, especially if they started creating armies of uh, Renfields and mental slaves. So instead would they just mutually agreed to have the longest running game of diplomacy ever they each took se separate sections of Europe proper and they have a agreed upon time limit to see who can progress the most towards conquering their section of Europe by a certain date. And whoever wins gets to implement their plans to take over Europe and the rest of the world with the other vampires being subservient to it. That is certainly not a narrative I've heard before. Yay. I am impressed. Bravo. Yay! So there, there may be a third of the way towards taking down the first one, and of course they only know that there is one, so I'm hoping that once they finally get the stake in this one, he'll drop the bombshell as he's going about losing out to his family in the great game, and the players will just go, wait a sec, what did you just say? And he'll have that classic moment where the villain, as he's dying, realizes that his enemies don't know how deep they're in. Do you have a monologue written out already? Oh, I have some seeds. Uh, I got. I still have probably another couple of months before I really need to get it finalized, but I definitely have an idea of what I'm going to say. Have you laid any subtle hints towards the other three vampires? One or two that are kind of subtle. Uh, the players currently think that uh, the import-export agency that they're investigating right now, they found indicators of shipments to the other regions of Europe where the other family members are hiding. But currently they just think that they found a, a human trafficking ring or a drug smuggling ring. They don't know the real purpose of it yet. Which do you enjoy more having your players actually connect the dots or connecting the dots the wrong way and coming up with crazy ideas that you never even conceived of? See, I love both, so this is literally a win-win situation for me. If they connect the dots, I'll have that little feeling of pride that I actually made something that was logical and sounded smart. And if they come up with their own batshit crazy theory, I will probably find a way to make that the truth and ditch whatever I had written. When you're developing a narrative, you said you like to write. I like to create things in my head a lot. I mostly write down just the uh, the core notes of what I'm trying to get across just for my own uh, memory aid going forward. So for this one, I have the core notes about each of the members of the family, like it's a couple of sentence fragments about their goals and how they go about things and maybe one or two core allies. And then as needs be, I will flesh those out further down the line. Between game sessions, what do you do to keep the story fresh in your mind? I tend to uh, just kind of mentally replay 
the, the prior session a little bit before the next one. So just go over uh, moments that I thought would be resonant that weren't or uh, what I thought would be innocuous moments that the players really remembered and talked about after the game was over and try to build upon those for the next time. But no major journaling? Not really. I always somewhat secretly hope that the players will start doing that stuff just kind of of their own accord. And I'm getting that wish in the Nice Black Agents game because one of the players is kind of making an adversary map that they're keeping up with on the forums as they learn more information, which is what I really want all along. But I don't want that to happen unorganically. I want the the players to want to do that. At the start of each session, do you do any recap? Yes, I always, always have ideally one of the players if able, but if not, I have, I give a recap of the high notes of last session and I subtly hint at one or two of the things that they should remember if they happen to have forgotten. Uh, and then I go forward with the actual session. And then at the end, I always try to ask if the players have any comments or questions or concerns about anything. If they remember something incorrectly, do you correct them? That's a case-by-case thing. If they remember something incorrectly, and it is going to absolutely lead to dead air and frustration among the players, I'll try and drop some hints or maybe a skill check or something to get them back on the right path. If they remember something incorrectly, but it can certainly lead to some unexpected development, I will just let it fly. So we're going to start wrapping up, but before we do... We have to go over the PIVO questionnaire, as developed by Bernard PIVO, then ripped off by myself. <laughs> what is your favorite word? Ooh, uh, something with at least three syllables. I can't narrow it down right now, but knowing me, it's something with at least three syllables. For a rhythm aspect? No, mostly just because I try to make myself sound smarter by using bigger words. What is your least favorite word? Bay. I'm assuming B-A-E. Yes. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I really respond to passion and interest. I don't want anything to be forced. I want everything to ideally happen organically in response to stimuli. So I don't want people to play my games because I suggested it and they would be letting me down if they didn't. I want them to play because they want to play. And what turns you off? Going through the motions, doing things just for rote reasons. That just kills interest in things for me. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Something that's not one of the big seven. Like, I get that people might be a little surprised if I hear an errant, oh shit, come out. But when people come up with, oh, dick whistle, that's, that's when I know that I've actually got their attention. What sound or noise do you love? 
I really like white noise. It's calming. A uh, specific one like uh, TV static? No, um, I like uh, cat purring. What sound or noise do you hate? Dog whistle style beeps. What game system, other than your own, would you like to attempt? In my heart of hearts, I know it'll never happen, but if I could somehow get people around me interested and committed to a Shadowrun game, that would be my dream. I, I love Crunch, and nobody else around me loves Crunch. What game system would you not like to do? Pathfinder. It takes the fantasy setting that I'm tired of, and it emphasizes the tactics that I'm bored of. When your game finishes, what would you most like to hear your players say? That was memorable. I'm not going to forget this. Do you have any stories from past games that have lived on through the years? Honestly, the, the the stuff that stands out to me is from that fantastical contraption game that I mentioned earlier, but it's not any one particular event. It's the closest I've gotten to actually getting an entire party buying into what I was selling. Uh, everybody just ran with their role and never looked back, and I always, always liked what happened in there before it died. Thank you, Kyle, for joining us at the Master Studio. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, the only losing game is the one you don't play.